Hey everyone, back again, and at long last, we're gonna start Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1. Now, I've covered Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nation, Nations and David Ricardo's The Principles of Political Economy and Taxation, so you can find those on this channel as well, or in podcast form if you are listening to this in podcast form. And that will serve as a good introduction to many of the different ideas that Karl Marx will critique in this text, notably his critique of political economy. Now, before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than on here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guigno. If you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way that makes them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. Who knows? They might not. But, but I've heard I'm good at making people fall asleep. So if you have a friend that uh, has trouble sleeping, maybe recommend my voice and that might help them. Now, I want to say a little bit more about how I'm going to approach this text here. So this is going to be done in four parts. The first part is going to cover part one of the book, which is chapters one to four. The second part is going to cover parts two and three of the book, which is chapters five to 11. Part three is going to cover part four of the book, which is chapters 12 to 15. And then the final part, part four, is going to cover parts five, six, seven, and eight, which is chapters 16 to 33. Now you might say, oh, that seems like a lot to cover in the last episode. And the reason I'm doing it that way is because at that point, the chapters get much shorter, and a lot of it is uh, repetition from what had gone on throughout the rest of the book. So that's why I'm able to, I will be able to get through those much quicker without sacrificing um, a strong engagement with the material itself. Now, I don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Uh, let's jump into Karl Marx's Capital. Now, like many other books, it starts with a preface. And in the preface, he lays out the fact that he focuses primarily on England. Now, throughout the course of the text, he makes reference to uh, workers' movements in Germany, Holland, other places as well. But his main focus is, focus is on England. And he does this just to treat it as a kind of case study. And it happens to be an area that demonstrates the things he's describing particularly well. Now, in order to perform this critique, he's not only going to look at capitalism broadly, he wants to look at it at a cellular level as well. That is by looking at things like value, labor, money, uh, unions, and so on. And he sees himself as intervening in the discussion of economics, a, a discussion of economics that was dominated by people like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, uh, Malthus, say, among others, all of whom believed capitalism to be the ultimate form of social production. Now, Marx, res Marx responds by saying that capitalism is actually only uh, an historically transient stage of development. It is not itself the absolute form of all social production, and as he will come to show throughout the course of this text, it is actually geared towards, towards its own undoing. Now, the last thing I want to pull from the preface here before jumping into part one is how Marx characterizes his relationship to Hegel. So a lot of people have probably learned that Marx is indebted to Hegel, specifically the notion of the dialectic, which I will just say quickly, isn't as clear in Hegel as I think some people like to ascribe to it. But in any case, people attribute a certain association between Marx and Hegel. And this is something that Marx himself was very much uh, aware of, and he was indebted to Hegel. But whereas for him, Hegel focused on ideal concepts, ideal movements, 
Marx is instead interested in real things in the world, not abstractions, not looking for this thing called the notion or looking for binding threads between seemingly disparate entities. No, Marx is going to look exactly at things as they actually happen on earth and can be quantified and can be looked at in a materialist way. That is, there isn't uh, a kind of beyond what we can immediately experience in the world. There is only what we immediately have. And it is applying that method from Hegel that, of course, Hegel applies to rather abstract concepts and applying it to the real world to develop something from that. And now this puts us here into part one, titled Commodities and Money, which starts itself with chapter one, The Commodity. So the capitalist system is a system that produces commodities. And the commodity is a thing that satisfies, satisfies the need of whatever kind. So for different people, different commodities have use. For someone, a diamond necklace might not have any use, but for somebody else, it might have a whole lot of use, whether it's demonstrating one's class position or, or anything like that. So a commodity is something that satisfies a need to some extent, be that a physical need or a social need, and so on. So commodities can contain both a use value and an exchange value. So a use value would be what a thing can do. In the case of, for example, a shovel, a shovel can help you dig a hole, which you can then use the hole to, I don't know, put in a sewage system or whatever, septic system in your house, whatever you might use the hole for. Whereas its exchange value is going to determine what that shovel can get you on the market. So if I brought the shovel to the market and I said, hey, who wants this? What will you give me for it? And they give you three coats, for example just an example, then you know the, the exchange value of that shovel is three coats, if we just measure it in relation to coats, that is. Now there is no object on earth, no commodity, that in itself has an ex intrinsic exchange value. The only way something can have an exchange value is if it has entered into a marketplace where it can be exchanged for something else. Now that depends upon the organization of a system of exchange that allows for value to uh, arrive there, to, um, I guess, flourish. Whereas with, with use value, people can have use of objects without the market. So someone might, um, I don't know, sew themselves a coat that will have the use of keeping them warm in the winter. Now without a market, that coat has no exchange value, but it has a use value. Somebody else might want to even steal your coat because they see how good it is for you, but they aren't going to exchange it for anything. Now in the market, and in the case that I just presented where one shovel was equal to three coats, what we see here is that there is a sort of congruence or there's a sort of equilibrium or a sort of equality that is crafted between these two different things. There is nothing similar between a coat and a shovel, both in appearance and in use. They, they have nothing in common. Yet we can find a common ground for them in terms of exchange in the market. And in fact, that is the condition upon which exchange can happen at all. So if you had all the same things in the market, you can't exchange them for the same thing. So if I went to the market with a shovel, I can't exchange that for another equal shovel. And that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. There wouldn't be a net gain. So it is only things that are different or 
whose history is different. And what I mean by whose history, or that's history, its history, whatever, its history must be different from something else's in that the amount of labor or the type of labor that went into it has to be different as well. And for an object to take on the status of a commodity, it must be created with the intent of it having or containing some exchange value. So that coat that I made for myself to satisfy my own need is not in itself a commodity. It only has use value. It isn't something that is going to be exchanged on the market. And when that coat enters the market, what effectively happens for it to become an exchange value or for its exchange value to, I guess, eclipse its use value, what happens at that moment is that its qualities as a specific thing in itself are erased. So in the case of the shovel for three coats, I am not saying or giving someone a shovel based on its qualities. I am trading with someone what I see to be an equivalent between the shovel and the three coats, which means I have abstracted from the shovel itself as a use value, as its qualities, and embraced only its exchange value, it being equal to three coats. Now, how can I have this exchange? How can I say a shovel is equal to three coats? Well, Marx says, and he borrows and takes this from the previous political economists before him, like Smith and Ricardo, among others, the value of an object, that is what you're going to get for it on the market, a shovel equal, equaling three coats, for example, the value of an object is going to be determined by the amount of labor that was required to go into it. So in the case of a shovel, if it took, say, a laborer 10 hours to make, plus uh, however much the resources cost. And I think it's important here to mention that when we discuss resources, like the metal that goes into a shovel or the wood that goes into a shovel, none of these things has value in itself. The only reason those things have value, that is the producer, the worker, whoever, who uses them to craft the shovel, isn't buying these things because they have value in themselves, they only have value because they required labor to procure, to uh, acquire them. So you aren't paying the metal to let you use the metal. You're paying somebody else, another worker, another producer, who made that metal, prepared it for you, that you then put into the shovel. So all things, all resources, can be down to the, I guess their common denominator, brought down to labor. Now to return to this exchange between the shovel and the three coats, what we are saying then is that the labor, total labor, that includes the labor of putting the coats together, sewing them together, plus all the labor that went into procuring the resources necessary, the raw materials necessary to make the coats, that value, that net number value is going to be equal to making one shovel because they exchange for one another within the market. But interestingly, in the market, if I were to go to the market and exchange a shovel, try to exchange the shovel for three coats, I don't sit down and interrogate the person selling them to me and say, hey, how much labor went into this? Tell me exactly how much uh, labor was required for not only to put it together, but all the raw materials that I guess were required to put it together. I don't do that because that would be wacky. Instead, there seems to be kind of a mysterious tacit acknowledgement about what Marx calls the socially necessary unit of labor or the socially average unit of labor. So societally, socially, 
we have agreed upon how much layer labor sorry is required to make like three coats and a shovel and we've kind of totally agreed that they are equal so therefore we can exchange the two now the reason that we rely upon this average socially average unit of labor is because between different producers the time and effort might vary but it would be very difficult to have a marketplace if the value of things what it can be exchanged for on the market if that value were to change based on this individual laborers production of a thing it would be every market would then have different values it would be very difficult to attain some kind of equilibrium so instead there needs to be an abstraction from the specific labor that went into an object in favor of the socially average or the mean labor required to make that thing which then can be sold on the market and can easily be compared with other objects to be exchanged with now the political economists before marx like adam smith and ricardo didn't think about it this way they just thought about it in terms of labor for the most part now this is one of the first really necessary interventions that i think marx gives in that it's totally naive to think that labor is itself only going to determine the value of an object there has to be a kind of abstraction from labor or else a market wouldn't be able to form at all that is an abstraction in the average form as i've just presented it so the substance of the value of a thing is going to be the labor that went into it and the quantity that is the magnitude of value is going to be the labor time so you have labor and then its duration and these two things are going to determine the value of uh, a commodity but of course keep in mind we are talking here about the socially necessary uh, or socially average labor power required so for example if 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat then that means one coat demands 20 homogenous that is socially average labor power hours or units as it takes to make uh, one linen but how do we actually determine the value of labor itself how do we say that someone's time is worth x amount of dollars or x number of hours put into making a coat is going to earn however much within the marketplace well we measure the value of labor based on the amount that is required to keep the laborer alive so this this is going to involve calculating food shelter and other necessary things that the laborer needs in order to stay alive and this is the bare minimum value of labor so in order to pay oneself let's say i make objects i'm a, a craftsman and i make chairs or a, i'm a carpenter and i make chairs to sell in the market i need to value my time equal to or greater then the amount that is going to be required to keep me alive so that means factoring in how much it's going to cost to feed me maybe i have a family how much it's going to cost to feed children and so on and so forth and and to shelter all of these things so the necessary labor is going to be tied to the necessary goods and basic necessities that people need in order to survive so if we return to that previous formula i just presented that is 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat and i should have said this earlier but throughout the course of this text there are going to be math equations i have done my best to get rid of the ones that aren't necessary and the ones that are necessary 
to make them even easier than Marx presents them, because I know how difficult it is to be listening to this and then try to be thinking about math equations when, when math equations are a very visual thing. So I'm going to try and make them as simple as humanly possible. So sorry for the tangent. 20 yards of linen equals one coat. So let's say, for example, the value of a coat were to uh, half, it were to fall by half, then 20 yards of linen would actually get you two coats, which means that the value of coats has gone down or the value of linen has gone up. We can't know exactly if we look at this equation, that is 20 yards of linen equals one coat, if that transforms into 20 yards of linen equals two coats, we don't know if 20 yards of linen have doubled in value or the one coat has halved in value, in which case you can buy more coats with the same amount of linen. Now let's say uh, somebody who makes coats was to get a new machine or learn a new technique to make coats. And in eight hours, they used to be able to make one coat. For example, who, who knows how long it would actually take. Let's just say in one hour or eight hours, they were able to make one coat. Now let's say they found a way to double their efficiency. Now in eight hours, they can make two coats, but the labor that went into it remains the same. So now the value that was found in one coat is now found in two coats. So the value of each has gone down. The value of each of those coats has gone down. In fact, each is now half of what one used to be. And because it is now easier to make those coats, you can bring them to the market and sell them for less because it costs you less to make it. And that is why in this case, for example, two coats can get you uh, 20 pieces of linen or uh, the other way around. If you were to maybe, it, it became harder to buy linen or to make linen, then maybe their value will go up if you halved the quantity that you had because they were harder to find and then it took even more uh, coats to buy linen and so on. Now, I hope that that was fairly clear. I think that the big point to take from it is that value is going to be related to the socially necessary labor power that went into it or the socially average labor power necessary to produce the thing. Now he turns back to exchange value more specifically to consider how, I guess, the value of things are determined within the market and the role of money in determining the value of a thing. And to talk about exchange, he begins with what he calls the simple, isolated, or accidental form of value. Now this is for him the most simple form of exchange. And this is like the one he just presented above, where 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat, or a shovel is equal to three coats, whatever. Now in this case, where 20 yards of linen equals one coat, what he says is that the 20 yards of linen is what he calls a relative value whereas the one coat is the equivalent value. Now, if I were to flip the equation and I were to say one coat is equal to 20 yards of linen, then it would be reversed. And in this case, the one coat would be a relative value and the 20 yards of linen would be the equivalent value. Now, if you're listening, you might say, well, the, that's the same equation, that's the exact same thing. Why would their determination as relative or um, equivalent, why would that change? Well, it doesn't really, at least not at this moment. So just put a pin in that and we'll, we'll get to it. Now, in this case, between 20 yards of linen and one coat, what we are saying 
is that x number of coats is equal to x number of uh, linen. That is, there is a kind of um, congruency between the two. They can be related and equated to one another, which implies then that weaving, the cost of weaving, the labor that goes into weaving linen is equal to the same amount of tailoring of a, of a coat if we assume that 20 yards of linen equals one coat. So, so the weaving of 20 yards of linen is equal to the tailoring of one coat. One labor is equal to a different yet equal labor. Now, one of the issues in determining value by comparing two objects like this, coats and linen, is that if they both doubled in value, so if they were to both double in value, that would mean that the means to make them got harder, so it required more labor power to make them, we wouldn't actually be able to discern any change at all because their relative relationship would stay the same. So if they doubled in value, both of them, then that means there would be a doubling in the amount of labor for both, which means that any difference represented in their prices would only uh, be a relative difference. It wouldn't actually change the relationship between the two or tell us anything about what actually happened in that arrangement. So we can only figure out a difference in value or a change in value by, for example, entering in or introducing a third item, a third thing that those other two things can now be related to. But in this situation, this kind of exchange, what he calls the simple isolated or accidental form of value, we are still, as it says, as it implies, in a simple form of exchange where things only are related to, their value is only determined by the relationship to other things. There's nothing beyond commodities engaging with commodities here. So from this, he moves to what he calls to the expanded form of value. And here we add things to the equation. So 20 yards of linen might equal one coat, which might equals 10 pounds of tea, which might equal one quart of corn, and so on. And you could throw in any other possible equals here, uh, might equal one shovel, who knows? You know, throw in anything you want here to figure out the general equivalent between different commodities. Now, because linen in this case is the first thing mentioned, the first uh, kind of factor in this equation, it still assumes the relative form of value. It is still the relative commodity in all of this. So we could then say 20 yards of linen is equal to one coat, 20 yards of linen is equal to 10 pounds of tea, and 20 yards of linen is equal to one quarter of corn, quart of corn. And so the linen can then be used to exchange for anything else. It can kind of assume the form of a universal equivalent because we now have all of these other commodities that can be measured against one another not by just comparing, for example, one coat equals 10 pounds of tea, but we say one coat is equal to 20 yards of linen, and also 10 pounds of tea is equal to 20 yards of linen. And it is only at this point for Marx, where commodities can be related not directly to one another, but to a general equivalent that we have introduced or we have entered into um, the real relation of value between different commodities. And here opens up the potential to introduce money because we, we should know that the history of money is, is a difficult one, but money probably began as gold or silver or something that was socially deemed valuable. But these were just other commodities like anything else. 
but they were agreed upon to serve as the universal equivalent, the kind of standard measure of all other things. Which remember doesn't mean that gold determines value. It is instead labor still that determines value, but we just represent labor with gold or with silver, with bronze, whatever. And now opens up the possibility for what he calls commodity fetishism or the fetishism of the commodity. So insofar as commodities are valuable because they are made through labor, they extend beyond their physicality into the social or almost metaphysical sphere. So when they are exchanged in the market, they are abstracted from their real tangible qualities and become just kind of nebulous, uh, ephemeral exchange values. Now that is only possible because of a certain development in human social relationships where we can now say that we can exchange things that have been procured from our labor in this thing called the market. So commodities emerge and have value as a reflection of certain developments in the social conditions of the time. So in that way, commodities are reflections of social life. They are reflections of this transition into a sort of market economy. Now, commodity fetishism emerges when there is a social relationship imparted on commodities with other commodities. And so they take on a meaning beyond their physicality. But again, the value of commodities and commodities themselves don't just fall down from the sky as though they are bestowed upon commodities by God. They are determined by labor, specifically the labor of private individuals in producing like shovels or linen or whatever. Now, the value of those commodities doesn't exist until that commodity has been brought to the market in which it can be exchanged for other commodities, which is just a kind of translation of labor being exchanged for other labor. It's kind of um, an intermediary exchanging one labor for another in the market. And in these social settings, because this requires the socially average unit of labor or socially necessary unit of labor power or whatever, that depends upon a kind of abstraction and homogenization of labor to be able to say weaving can be equal to tailoring or welding can be equal to weaving, whatever, because the market is what gets rid of all these differences, irons them out so that things can be exchanged. So the kind of binding thread between all commodities and therefore all labor is the fact that they are all the product of human labor power. That is the guiding thread between all different commodities that might look different, they might have different labor put into them, but what binds them is the fact that there is human labor power put into the production of anything. And this is true even of automation, even though we're going to come to kind of qualify this throughout the course of the text. But if we have only automation, the only way that was made possible was by humans making machines. And if those machines were made by machines, then it was humans who made those first machines. And everything, everything can be reduced at some point in their genesis, in their being formed, brought back to labor. Now, this abstraction only occurs when objects, commodities are brought to the market and are exchanged for one another. And there's, it's kind of a mysterious thing. And he says that this corresponds or represents what he calls a kind of social hieroglyphic, where things take on a value. And that value is determined by exchange with other things, but it is also determined by the labor that went into it. Yet there's like a, a removal from that labor when things become exchanged or start to be exchanged because things are removed from their physicality and become only 
used in exchange, for exchange. Now that puts us here into chapter two, the process of exchange. So commodities can't go to the market by themselves. They need to be produced to enter into exchange. They need to be transported to the market and so on. But in the moment that things are brought to ex be exchanged, what happens is that there are different individuals that are all bound by their mutually owning private property, they're mutually owning things, they own things that are theirs, that they can then bring to the market and sell to make a profit or get for something else. And so in this case, these people are only the personification of the economic system itself that relies upon these types of exchanges. Exchanges of socially necessary labor time in the form of commodities. But what is also implied in this moment, this transaction between two commodities, is the mutual recognition by both people that are selling the commodity that that commodity doesn't have a use value for them. So if I go to the market with a shovel, what I'm saying is that I don't need this shovel more than I need, let's say, three coats. And that person is also saying the same thing. They're saying, I need a shovel. I don't need three coats. So use value has gone away from the object for the specific person. It has only assumed at that point then an exchange value. So it's almost as though the object, the commodity, begins as an exchange value because I'm saying I don't have use for this thing. I don't have a use value for it. I'm going to sell it as exchange, as an exchange value, and someone is going to then take it as a use value. So that object then seems to have an exchange value before it has a use value. And there's a kind of transformation of the object here, a transformation of the commodity. And this is what Marx calls the social metabolism of a commodity. So metabolism implies a kind of metamorphosis. So imagine someone selling something, a commodity for money, to get something else. So if I sell a shovel to get money, let's say I get $10 for it, I could then turn around and take that $10 and buy, I don't know, uh, I buy a um, pot for cooking, whatever. So the shovel has transformed into $10, which has transformed into a pot. What we have in this case is somehow an, equ uh, an equivalent drawn between a shovel and a pot. And with this kind of exchange, money becomes very necessary because previously, maybe nobody wanted my shovel. Maybe I couldn't give my shovel to anyone because nobody wanted it, and therefore I wouldn't be able to get a pot. But because we have entered into the system that allows for a general equivalent, and as we presented it earlier, it was the case of linen, linen being equal to everything else as a money form, or as a thing that stands in for the universal equivalent, money facilitates exchange. It allows us to exchange seemingly different things for other things, or for each other, I should say. So in that process where I have a shovel for $10, which becomes a pot, what I am saying is that between the shovel, $10, and the pot is an equivalent. Uh, there's the same quantity of objectified social labor or of average social labor unit net, uh, of labor power or socially necessary labor power. So one shovel is equal to $10, which is also equal to one pot. Now, in the case of money here, we aren't really talking about we are talking about money in terms of dollars, but there was also a time, of course, when we were thinking about money in terms of gold and silver. 
And it is sort of a mysterious thing that gold and silver took on the form of the universal equivalent because gold and silver have other uses. You can make plates out of gold, you can make silver uh, plates out of silver, you make jewelry out of gold or silver and so on. So you can do things with gold as a use value, not only to be exchanged for other things. Whereas for example, like paper money, it has very little use beyond its use as exchange, which is why paper money is quite effective at a, being a universal equivalent, because it is not going to be used for anything other than exchange. But when any commodity is measured in terms of a universal equivalent, it is then, as I think I've already intimated, uh, it is then abstracted. It is alienated from itself because it is detached from its own use value and becomes exchange value, where suddenly a shovel isn't a shovel for use, it is $10, or it is a pot. And that puts us here into chapter three, money or the circulation of commodities. So because the value of all things can be traced back to homogeneous abstracted labor or socially necessary labor power, their value can be abstracted in, universal, in a universal commodity like money, as I've already suggested. So money only works then in an imaginary or ideal capacity because it doesn't have use. It doesn't really have uh, an attachment to real things. It is something that stands outside of real things, yet serves as the metric of the value of those things. Now, in the case of gold and silver, they don't have a universal set value. Their value is going to be determined about uh, on the amount of labor required to bring them to market. And it could also be determined by a number of other things. Let's say, for instance, a new mine is discovered that is really chock full of gold. What that is going to do is bring the value of gold down because there's more of it and it has become less valuable. But even though the value of gold can change, it doesn't change its value as money. And this applies to money in the like paper money, too, because paper money's value is always changing. The paper money in Canada is different from the value that is, has a different value than the paper money in the United States, which has a different value from the paper money in, uh, in England, and so on. So there is a relationship between commodities and money, and this relationship isn't always clear though. So a rise in value of money might be met with a rise or a fall in the price of commodities. Who knows, there are so many other factors that are going to play a part in this. And uh, Smith and Ricardo really talk about this, write about this a lot, and I recommend, you know, you gotta go read their stuff, but I also, as I said, I've done a few episodes on that, if you want a shorter way to approach those texts. Or sometimes money can even be used to buy things that don't have value, don't have labor attached to them. For example, you can buy someone's honesty, you can buy someone's honor or loyalty, and so on. So money is always circulating. It needs to be in order to allow for exchange to happen at all. And what it is doing and always circulating is taking real things out of the market and putting them to real use. So I go to the market because I want to buy something I'm going to use. And when it is put to real use, what is presented here for Marx is one of the first contradictions that he presents to us of capital. So if we think back to that exchange between the shovel turning into money, which then turns into a pot, what we have is a shovel as a commodity turning into money and the money then turning into another commodity, the pot. And here we see a kind of antagonism between the use value of a thing and the exchange value of a thing. 
and they are constantly fighting it out, where use value and exchange value don't live harmoniously. And we must ask, how uh, valid is this form of exchange in the first place, this very simple form of exchange, if there's always this kind of struggle between what someone is going to offer somebody else and what that thing is going to get in the market or be exchanged for at the end of the day. So with this formula or with this system, we can ostensibly find out how much value is circulating and how much how much money is circulating. So if, for example, we have $2, I have $2 and I'm going to use it to buy an apple. And then I sell the apple for $2. So I have $2 to buy an apple and I sell that apple for $2. I haven't made any money. I'm still left with the same $2. And then let's say I buy bread for $2. What I can then say is that $4 has been spread around, but it was the same $2 just twice in a row. So Marx writes, the quantity of money functioning as the circulating medium is equal to the sum of the prices of the commodities divided by the number of times coins of the same denomination turn over or are used. So let me read that again. The quantity of money functioning as the circulating medium is equal to the sum of the prices of commodities, all the prices put together, divided by the number of times certain coins, you know, money is used of the same denomination turnover, how often they are put into use to buy things. And this will also determine what he calls the velocity of commodities. And so the total money in circulation is going to be affected by the movement of prices, the quantity of commodities in circulation, and the velocity of the circulation of money, how much money is being spread around and how quickly, uh, how many things are actually in circulation and the prices of things which doesn't seem all that shocking. These, these are factors that are going to determine how much money is actually needed in circulation. So to put it, to provide an example, but to make it as easy as possible, for example, if the price of commodities goes down, all the commodities on earth, if their price were to fall by half, the actual amount of money in circulation might stay the same if the number of commodities also increases by, by twice as much. So if the value, the price of things comes down by half, but they have doubled, there's double of them, then the price of things or the amount of money in circulation may stay the same because they're, uh, the change that was caused by having the price or cutting the price in half has now been remedied by doubling the number of objects, the number of commodities. Now, in some of the earlier political economists, there was an idea that all of the commodities there is the equivalent in value, the price value of all commodities and the amount of money in circulation. Marx doesn't totally buy this because he says with money form, that is the existence of a universal equivalent, when debts can occur in a system where, you know, you can say to someone, oh, you don't have enough to buy this. Um, I will let you pay me later and I'll put interest on top of it. So in that case, what might have been a $10 coat now costs $11 because someone comes to me and says, oh, I only have $5. Will you take this $5 and I'll pay you the rest of the five later and give you an extra dollar for your trouble? Now, in that case of debt and interest, now the price of the coat is worth more. It, it is now worth 11 than 10. And what that does is it skews the relationship between the price of commodities, of all the commodities, and the amount of money. 
Now the money form, as this example kind of implies, introduces the possibility for credit. Now credit actually creates money, creates wealth in dollar values, as it is detached from actual labor going into the production of things. But there is a contradiction presented here in the form of money, that is the introduction of the universal equivalent as the money form. And this is because money is used to stand in for wealth, but you must also spend it in order to demonstrate that wealth in the form of things. Now, I'm about to end this episode here, but as he will come to say on the next, uh, in the next chapter, in the next part, in the next episode I'll get into, he says we can resolve this contradiction by understanding the capitalist mode of production and the capitalist form of exchange. So previously, if you know there was an attachment between money and the circulating commodities, it'd be difficult to actually attain any wealth in the form of demonstrating that wealth and existing wealthily because money is not valuable on its own. If I were to live on a mountain of gold, that would do nothing for me. I have to use that gold to provide things that will actually stand in for my wealth. But this is a contradiction that is presented in this basic form. Now this is resolved in the capitalist form of exchange because it is with this economic system, the introduction of an economic system in which profit is made, in which objects are created for the sake of profit, that spending doesn't just get you the equivalent. Spending gets you more than what you've spent. And this is how we move from basic commodity forms being exchanged for other commodities with a basic universal equivalent like money, how we go from this into capital, the introduction of capital. And that, yeah, I'll wrap that up here just at the end of part one. Next time, we're going to start part two. And in that episode, we'll also cover part three. So yeah, hope you like what I did here. Uh, if there's anything I missed or anything I should have or I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Um, yeah, if you haven't already, like, share, subscribe. Most of you listeners probably haven't liked, shared, subscribed uh, because I have the data on that. But yeah, that would help me out a lot. And uh, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.